Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Liz Moody Podcast. Formerly known as the Healthier Together Podcast, we are the same podcast, but with even more of everything you love. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life. Whether we're hearing pet health tips from a top veterinarian, learning neuroscience hacks to control anxiety, or having conversations about the pros and cons of having kids. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if any of those topics sound good to you, scroll on back in the archives. Today, I am so excited to welcome Farnoosh Torabi to the podcast. Farnoosh is one of America's leading personal finance authorities. She's a former CNBC host and the creator of the Webby-nominated podcast, So Money, and her work and advice have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, and many more. She's written a number of amazing books, and her newest one is called A Healthy State of Panic, Follow Your Fears to Build Wealth, Crush Your Career, and Win at Life. It was just published, so definitely go grab your copy after listening to this episode. This episode is all about overcoming money anxiety, which is something that I personally have struggled with a ton over the years. I love doing money episodes. The more that we know about this stuff, first of all, the more we can assuage that anxiety, but also the more that we can make and keep the money that we deserve, especially as women. Literally just bringing these topics into the open is so key for making progress. So it is an absolute honor to get to have this conversation with you all and with Farnoosh today. We get into the pros and pitfalls of being the primary breadwinner and being a stay-at-home parent, why women have more money anxiety than men from a historical perspective, three things to do today to be more financially secure, the number one thing you should do if you want to be as rich as possible, the most common money fears that people have, and exactly how to address each one, how to not feel like your self-worth is defined by your net worth, how to get over feeling unsafe or uncertain about your financial future, the right way to be afraid of money. Yes, there is one. How to tackle money fears about things that are out of your control, about things like inflation or recessions or job loss. What to do when you're in a different financial situation than your friends. Exactly how to know if a big financial risk is worth taking and so much more. As always, we would both love to hear your thoughts as you're listening, so definitely screenshot and tag us on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody, and Farnoosh is at Farnoosh Torabi. And if Farnoosh's advice resonates with you, please share this episode with a friend. It is the best way to support the podcast, and it's completely free, which we always love. Also, friends, 100 Ways to Change Your Life comes out next week. If I'm being very honest, I am exhausted. Releasing a book into the world is no joke, but I'm also so, so, so excited for this book, this book that I am so proud of that I've worked so hard on for it to finally get into your hands. You can grab your book tour tickets at lizmoody.com slash tour. It's going to be a life-changing evening. You will make new friends. Solo guests are highly, highly encouraged. You will laugh a lot. You will learn a lot. A ton of cities are already sold out, so please get on that ASAP and come join the fun. And if you haven't gotten a copy for pre-order yet, head to 100waystochangeyourlife.com. Our $1,000 giveaway to an airline of your choice is ending on the 17th. This giveaway is for pre-orders only, so you only have one more week left to enter. Again, that is 100waystochangeyourlife.com, 100 Ways to change your life.com. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I 
cannot, oh, I'm like tingly thinking about it. I cannot wait to hear what you think. Okay, let's get right into tackling our money anxiety with the great Farnoosh Tarabi. Farnoosh, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to dive into all of my money anxiety and hopefully all of the listeners' money anxiety too, so you can assuage all of our fears. Why don't you just kick us off with what sparked your interest and relationship with money? I think that it's two things. One is that I grew up the daughter of Iranian immigrants who came here and through their hard work and efforts, got to see the fruits of your labor, but also what it means to save and be thoughtful about money. That said, not everything was always hunky-dory. My parents, one of the gifts I think was that they always talked about money, which does not happen even to this day in many households. And I was exposed to a lot of their private conversations about money. Maybe they didn't know that I was in the room or maybe they just didn't care. I was an only child for about 11 years. My brother was born later. But for those first 10 years of my life, we really struggled with money in some ways. My parents were really determined to achieve that American dream. And it required a lot. My dad had multiple jobs. My mom worked various odd jobs. And that led to a lot of financial arguments, let's just say. Like my mother didn't ever feel completely financially independent in the marriage. I would say 99% of their arguments were over the control of money, my father basically having it, my mother feeling like she had none of it. And that was such an education because one, I'm learning how people communicate around money the good and the bad, but also really that as a young girl growing up with hopes and dreams, I need to make my own money. And I will die on my sword encouraging women to be financially independent. And sometimes I get into trouble because I'm so passionate about that. But it's not what I want. I don't wish for anyone to not feel at least financially secure. What would you say to somebody who said, my dream my entire life has been to be a mom, has been to stay home with my kids and not to have to participate in this capitalism system. Is there solutions for that in your mind? I'm doing that in a way. I live that dream in some ways. For me, I always knew I wanted to be a mom. And I also knew I always wanted to prioritize my career too. And I think that generationally, we have evolved. I think that maybe our mothers and our grandmothers had to choose, frankly. you know, It wasn't so easy for them to sort of juggle it all and have it all. Not that that's the goal, or I'm not saying that that's like what I want everyone to have. All is hard. But I think as a young person today looking ahead, saying, I want to be a present parent and also be fulfilled in a career, I think that's possible. It does require some planning. It requires some special engineering sometimes, a lot of saving. I knew in my 20s that if I stayed in traditional media and corporate America while also trying to have a family, raise a family, that that would be difficult because I saw evidence of that. I saw women mm -hmm. leaving HR pregnant in tears because they were told, well, sorry, we don't really have a lot of maternity leave as it turns out. And you'll have to go on disability to make ends meet if you want to spend any more time with your children at home. And so I thought to myself, all right, I need to create a new blueprint. I got scared. Fear can be a catalyst for, in some cases, rewriting the rules for yourself. When you don't see a reality mirrored for you that you want to aspire to, then maybe you have to sort of 
create it on your own. And the earlier you can realize that, the better, because I started that in my mid-20s thinking, okay, I'm going to have to maybe become self-employed or work for an employer who's really, really generous or just move because <laughs> I was living in New York City and it's so expensive. I have people who ask me all the time, should we have kids? Should we not? And it's so expensive. And I'm like, yeah, it is. No denying that. In your life, there have to be some non-negotiables that you commit to, that anchor you. And what is a non-negotiable? It's basically something that defines your happiness and you will fight for it. You will go to the edge to fight for it. And for me, it was becoming a parent. I love having a career, but I love also being a mom. And I think those two things did compete and I wasn't willing to give up either. So what's my roadmap from here on out? So the thing that you might be willing to give up is living in New York City. It's the realization that you can't have it all, but what are your actual priorities within that? Yeah. And have a plan B and a plan C because things hardly ever work out. And we sometimes get fixated on this dream. And then when that dream doesn't happen, we get disappointed. But I always say, well, that dream wasn't real, frankly. Not to be rude, but that dream actually didn't happen. And so to be sad about it is not really a good use of your time. I mean, go out there and create a new reality. I am always hesitant, though, to tell people to start their own business, to become self-employed, because I think some people's personalities are so suited for that. And I think for other people, it's not. And then it's hard because I don't think our society is set up to support parents and particularly mothers. What's the statistic that when you have a kid as a woman in the workplace, you fall behind seven years in your career? So I think it's a tricky thing to navigate. And I can see why so many people become stay-at-home parents when they're like, well, the cost of childcare is literally equal to my salary. So I'm curious if you have any pragmatic advice for navigating the complexities around that. I think it can be all good to say you should do both, but our society sets it up to be really, really difficult to do both. Yes, absolutely. I have a lot of advice, especially for women and men who know early on that they want to be parents. And that's always helpful to sort of know what you want to do. Time helps so that you can start to plan for things. But even if you find yourself suddenly pregnant and realizing childcare is exorbitant, you make what you make, and that essentially is going to be an entire childcare payment for a year. This is the math that a lot of families do. They do this like quick math. That calculus, while it's not wrong, I don't think it's fair to just focus on that. You want to also think about what am I giving up by not working today? And am I going to be okay with that? You will be giving up a future nest egg, the ability to invest maybe in a workplace retirement account, the ability to collect social security, which will then help you in your later years, the ability to get back into the workforce with more ease. Because when you are out of the workforce for two, three, five years, it makes it that much more difficult to get back in. And so having said all that, I get people who are still resistant. They're like, I don't care. I have to live for today. I respect that there is maybe a scarier predicament but what am I going to do now? And I'd say what you should do now is if you're not going to work, that's fine, but have a plan to get back in, have a plan to make some money. And if not, if you have a partner talking about the money together, so often when we're not the one working, we 
default to the role of not being financially curious, not insisting on financial transparency. We don't feel like we have an equal financial say in the relationship. We need to put that aside and recognize that what you're doing as a full-time caregiver is so essential and so invaluable. I wish there was a world where we could actually pay mothers and fathers who don't work outside of the home. But until that day, we have to be our biggest advocates within our household and require that we are involved in financial decision-making and that our financial independence is also taken into consideration. So your spouse should have life insurance, right? Your spouse, you should together have savings and also your own savings. Is there a way for your partner who's bringing home the sole income paycheck to put aside some money for your financial well-being? You're not getting an allowance. This isn't financial parenting. This isn't control. This is just your role is so invaluable to the functionality of our family and the health of our family. Of course, we need to protect you. Protecting you financially is just one way. It's not just a small way. It's one of the most important ways. And then on the flip side, you've spoken a lot about the pitfalls and the best parts of being a woman who's the primary breadwinner. And I'm curious, what are some of the challenges of women making more money in their relationships that we don't talk about enough? Well, I can speak personally to this. And also, I've done a lot of research on this. Depending on what you want to find out about this, the study has been done. I think you know this. Depending on what your POV is, you'll find a study to back it up. I've seen everything from when she makes more, there is a higher probability for divorce, higher probability for cheating on both sides. And if you look at some of the national studies around people's, Americans' sentiment around household dynamics and who should be the primary earner, a majority of both men and women believe that it should be the man. I think that our society has evolved. We are living in quote unquote modern times, but we still have these prehistoric prefrontal cortexes. <laughs> we are still old in a sense that we are very much still clinging to these traditional patriarchal ways of at least living our lives as couples. And we default so much to gender role expectations. And so it is great to see so many couples evolving. It just, it takes time. I see it in the Gen Zers where I don't think they have as many trip ups around these gender role expectations. I hope that they'll be able to arrive in a relationship where it's not going to be taboo. Whoever makes more, whoever's not working, whoever's making less. This is the also the other thing is that you might be good in the relationship as whatever economic dynamic there is, she makes more, he makes less, but you may have cultural pressures. There might be people at work, your friend group, your parents that are judging. And I know it's easy to be like, who cares? But you know, we all care. It matters. Relationships matter. They influence us. And my advice is for those in your life who don't get it, who might be suspicious or suspect, oh, how could you be happy? How could this work? What if you want to have kids? I've faced all the questions. Is that you have to approach it with a lot of compassion and know that it's not about you, it's about them. Because I find that whenever someone questions your life choices with a bit of, hmm, how does that work? 
It's interesting. I think it's really more a sign of their discomfort, perhaps, or their confusion over the choices they've made in their life. And seeing you do something completely different, well, it puts them in conflict. There's friction now in their minds around what they thought was the right way. And you're modeling something different. It's completely <laughs> throwing their life for a loop. And I think speaking of modeling, finding role models that you can look to, too, like you're one, you're the primary breadwinner in your relationship. I make more money than my partner makes. I think finding those touch points because we construct our realities and our notion of what's possible, what's normal, what's okay, what's accepted based on the stories that we witness, the more stories that we can surround ourselves with of people in that situation, the more normalized that story becomes. Yes. I wrote my book, the last book, When She Makes More. It came out in 2014. And so I wasn't even a mom yet. I was actually 10 months. <laughs> Can you be 10 months pregnant? I was eight months pregnant. It felt like 10 months. Pregnancy is 10 months. And I feel like we don't talk about that enough. <laughs> Honestly, the nine yeah. month thing is it's 40 weeks. Do the math. Right? Thank you. <laughs> Let's set the record straight. So <laughs> I birthed a book and a baby and it was in some ways, the before times, because I feel like fast forward to today, we've come even in just 10 years, fewer than 10 years, such a long way in being able to just talk about it. I remember telling people I was writing a book about women breadwinners at a dinner party where I knew that at least a few of the women were making more than their husbands. And it was like, you could hear a pin drop. It was very tense in the room. And then later, someone would pull me aside and say, you know, this is my life. <laughs> and I say, great, let's talk. <laughs> I'm writing a book. But now it rolls off the tongue a lot easier, I hope, for more people. Absolutely. Do you think that there's historical context to women in particular having a different relationship, different fears around money than men do? Women were not legally able to get a credit card until 1974. And for the vast, vast majority of human history, until very recently, women couldn't own their own property or generate income in most cultures in the world. And I think we lose sight of how recently all of these huge changes have happened. And I'm curious what you think the lingering impacts of that history are today. Well, Liz, look, fearlessness is a privilege. Being able to not be afraid of your present and your future, I think that is a reality few of us will ever really experience. And I think particularly for anyone who's felt marginalized, women, people of color, someone who's disabled, someone who's in the LGBTQ community, when someone says be fearless, question the source <laughs> sometimes. And I think that certainly, certainly as a woman who may have grown up not being told she can be financially strong and is good at math and should pursue investing and all the things that I think young boys and men get, whether it's directly or indirectly from society and their families, women don't get those narratives. And so are we so surprised that they arrive at their financial lives feeling less capable? And on top of that, the financial industry is reflective more of traditional men's values. For me, I remember I had a hard time coming to terms with wanting to make more money. And it's because I didn't want to be perceived as somebody who was power hungry. What? Okay, let's unpack that. Okay, because money, we always say is power, right? And it's like, yeah, that's not me. And it took some talking to a money coach, frankly, who was like, 
your definition of power is very, very myopic. And it's because of how power is portrayed in the media and how we talk about it. It's this really masculine energy, this domination. And I'm not to say that that's exclusive to men, but I don't think that that is, for me, it was not tapping into my feminine, <laughs> but she's like, remember power is multifaceted. You can have power to uplift, you can have power to promote, you can have power to invest and support. And I was like, yeah, that's more my power. That's the flavor of power that I like. And she said, great, well, now that you've accepted that, go back to this idea that you have that having more money means having power, which is bad. And I said, yeah, I need to rewrite that. So even for me, okay, somebody who felt very comfortable talking about money as a kid and as a young adult and then dedicated a whole career to it, I still had some complexities around what money meant to me and my ability to be fearless around money. When I looked at it and I looked back at it, it was because of so many of the messages that I got growing up and not just from my community and culture, but on the television and in movies and the powerful man at the top of the tower taking everyone's money. We've seen it all. We've seen all the characterizations, but it all impacts us, especially as women who, again, we're new to the money world. We have not been invited to the money world. We are in some ways playing some serious catch up and we're doing a great job at it, but you got to give us some grace there because you're going to be a little bit behind. It's not to say that it's hard to learn. You can learn very quickly. This is the other myth that it's really hard, that it's somehow really complex and you have to be really smart to get it. No, it's actually quite simple. It's just that we have been shut out of this world for so long. We have been made to feel like we don't belong. Centuries of that kind of conditioning. What do you expect? I started hearing about colostrum a year or so ago, and I got so many messages from all of you. Was it hype? Was it worth it? I am super cautious about any recommendations that I give you, so I wanted to do a deep dive into the research and try it myself, which I've been doing for the past six months. And I'm happy to say that I was really pleasantly surprised by what I found. First of all, if you're like, what is colostrum? It is the first nutrition we receive in life, and it contains all of the essential nutrients our bodies need in order to thrive. The brand I tried is Armra Colostrum, and they're definitely the highest quality one that exists. The reason I wanted to try it was for my allergies. I am allergic, unfortunately, to my fur daughter, Bella, which does not stop me from cuddling her during most of my waking life. And there's really interesting research about how colostrum can help. Essentially, it reduces the pro-inflammatory cytokines that can cause allergic reactions, and a number of studies show that it helps protect and heal your gut and help feed your microbiome, both of which have downstream positive impacts on allergies. I've personally seen a huge difference in my itchy eyes, my stuffiness, and all of that, which is a huge win for me. And if you suffer from gut issues on their own, obviously that research would point to it being helpful there. It also has been shown to fight viral and bacterial infections in the gut, which is great for travel, but just also if you feel like anything is off and you want to create a better state of balance. There's also great research around its ability to regulate your immune system and that inflammation regulation will have so many other impacts, including helping with skin health, helping with energy, and more. Armor Colostrum is a sustainably sourced colostrum concentrate that harnesses over 400 living bioactive nutrients. 
While most colostrums undergo heat pasteurization, Armor Colostrum uses proprietary cold chain biopotent technology that preserves the integrity of the bioactive nutrients to guarantee the highest potency and bioavailability of any colostrum on the market. Armor Colostrum also sources their colostrum from grass-fed cows from their co-op of dairy farms in the USA, and they strictly source only the surplus supply of colostrum after calves are fully fed, which was so important to me. Armor Colostrum goes through extensive auditing and third-party testing to ensure their colostrum meets the highest bar of purity and efficacy, which includes being certified glyphosate-free. If any of that sounds good to you, we have worked out a special offer just for my audience. Receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Liz Moody or enter Liz Moody to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A dot com slash Liz Moody. You've probably heard me talk about how much I love seed on this podcast a million times, and you have definitely heard me talk about the importance of our microbiome with a ton of our expert guests. I think it's so important to underscore that supporting our microbiomes and taking Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic isn't just for gut health issues. While it definitely helps with issues like bloating and constipation, it's really about supporting your microbiome as a whole. Your entire body is impacted by your microbiome, especially when it comes to fighting illnesses like viral infections and even chronic diseases. And more and more research has come out about the gut-brain connection, which shows that an unbalanced microbiome can slow the production of neurotransmitters and affect many areas of brain function. I think it really helps to view Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic less as something that you take for your gut and more as a multivitamin to support your microbiome, which supports your whole body health. I've worked with Seed for years now, and it's a company whose mission and products are truly top-notch. They are so focused on education and pushing the field of microbiome research forward, and they took all of that research and all of that knowledge and distilled it into their flagship product, the DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. The DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is not just a probiotic. It's a symbiotic, which means it contains both probiotics and prebiotics. The combination is so important. While probiotics are the live beneficial bacteria, prebiotics are actually the food the probiotics need to thrive. Without the prebiotic component, the probiotics that you might be taking, like many of the ones that you can easily pick up at a drugstore, will be undernourished and far less effective. The DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic includes the 24 bacterial strains that are scientifically studied to support your whole body's health. If you want to learn more about gut health and how probiotics and prebiotics actually function, I highly recommend heading over to seed.com. They have a whole educational section that breaks down the science behind your microbiome in really digestible, see what we did there, digestible, yeah, in really digestible ways. Taking seed has been a huge part of my personal anxiety journey, and I get DMs from you guys truly on a daily basis about how it's helped with your mental health, your migraines, your chronic bloat, and more. And now they have a PDS-08 pediatric daily symbiotic so kids and teens can experience all of the amazing benefits too. And as if you needed another reason to love seed, their packaging is not only beautiful but sustainable. You can refill the little green glass bottle every month with the pills shipped right to your door in compostable packaging rather than using single-use plastic bottles. If you'd like to try Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic or their PDSO-8 Pediatric Daily Symbiotic for kids and teens aged 3 to 17, and see for yourself why I and so many other people in the Liz Moody podcast community love it, I have an amazing discount for you. You can use code LizMoody at seed.com to get 25% off your first month's supply. 
Again, that's Liz Moody at seed.com for 25% off. Yeah. And I think that awareness is so key because instead of berating yourself and being like, what's wrong with me? You're like, look at history. Look at how far we've come in such a short amount of time. Let's get into some of those simple steps, though. Can you share in your mind what three things that every woman should do, maybe short and long term, to be financially secure? If financial security is their goal, can you just share three super pragmatic tips? Yes. So the first is once you're making money, take any and all advantages to invest. And I would start with an investment portfolio that's offered from your company. That's usually the 401k or the 403b. Why I like to start there is because they take money out of your paycheck every pay cycle automatically, which may sound annoying, but it's actually psychologically very, very helpful to not be in control of that yourself because left to our own volition, we will not invest as frequently or as much. When it's automated, it gets done for us. And lo and behold, a year later, when you're ready to leave that job, you're leaving with like a $20,000 nest egg. Who would have known? But you let the robots take over and good for you. <laughs> the other thing I like about these employer-sponsored retirement accounts is that your contributions are tax deductible. So with every penny that you put into this account, it lowers your taxable liability, your tax liability by that amount. So that's a great place to start. You can also invest, I think, over $20,000 every year. So that's a lot. That's like a great way to play some catch up too. As far as how much to invest, hey, if you can do all of that, that's fantastic. But start with maybe 10% of your paycheck. If you're starting in your 20s, if you're starting a little bit later in your life, like 30s, 40s, maybe it's like 15%. And the other thing that I love about the 401k is that sometimes, and it's quite frequent still, surprisingly, your employer will match your contribution up to a percentage. So you put in a dollar, your employer puts in a dollar up to say five or 6% of your income. There's nothing else quite like that. There's no match. It's free money. In IRA. It's free money. <laughs> so yeah. rule number one, invest and take advantage of investment vehicles, starting with your workplace investment vehicles. Number two, I think it's really important to know what you absolutely need to have in your life to be happy and that you can change this formula. I'm not asking you for a five-year plan. I'm just asking for a one year. What does Liz need? What does Farnoosh need for the next 12 months that, yes, might even require some spending, but here are my non-negotiables because I find that it's much simpler to distill what it is that you are not willing to give up than anything else. It just really gets you a shortcut to creating that budget and building a really pleasant life around that. Because so much when we start to budget, it's about how can I save? What can I cut out? What can I spend less on? What are the two or three things that for you are vital? Like maybe it is travel, maybe it is concerts. And this goes back to my very first book, which is we talk about needs versus wants. What about the need wants? <laughs> like, I don't need to go to see Beyonce, but I really, really want to. And it's my 40th birthday. And it would mean so much to me to go there with my girlfriends and have this experience. My soul needs it. Your soul needs it. Yeah. And to plan for that and to budget for that. And, and that way, where you do then need to make cuts, you're more than willing. It's like a no brainer because you know you're going to get something really great out of it. So anchoring your budget in these need wants, as I say, these things that, yeah, you could live without it, but would you be happy? 
And then the third thing is that if you are still in a place where you're dating or even in a relationship, that you really open up about money with your partner. And the first question that you ask each other is not even about money so much. It's about what are your goals? What are our goals? And then you can talk about like, how were you raised around money? What are some of the very first memories of money that you have? Because I think it will give you a lot of important context for your partner as they go and make money decisions. A lot of times we are like, why did he do that? Or why did she spend money on that? And I think that we don't have the context half the time. So having that history is really, really important. I think from there, you also have more ease to talk about the other important things like how to afford your goals. I mean, I just think that even if you're not in a partnership and you don't want to be, having someone else in your life that you can talk about money with, and it could be a planner, it could be a friend, it could be a coworker, it could be listening to a podcast where you feel really connected to the host and you can somehow maybe even send in questions. I think that it's so important to fill your life with more of what you want to grow in and grow at. So if you've got the partner, start there. It's the best person to start talking about money with. And let's say you don't want to just be secure, but you want to get as rich as possible. Do you have any one or two maybe pragmatic tips for that? As rich as possible? Well, investing certainly, there's a saying, you don't need to be wealthy to invest, but you have to invest to be wealthy. And that's a long game. And I'm sensing in your question that this is maybe somebody who's very eager. (laughs) (laughs) I think actually an important part of the money conversation, I had this conversation my very first time I saw a financial advisor. I was like, okay, I have some money for the first time in my life. How do I leverage that this year (laughs) into never having to work again? And he's like, "Mm, it doesn't really work like that. And I think switching some of your thinking to the long-term stuff, the boring stuff is actually the stuff that's going to make me as rich as I can possibly get. One of my favorite books is The Psychology of Money, Morgan Housel. And it's just a beautiful book that's full of storytelling and rich stories, but it's all about the truth to getting rich. And it is not investing in crypto. It's really just about the behavioral steps and the mentality that you need. It's boring. Liz, it's like you got to just be slow and steady, slow and steady. I will say though that throughout your life, there are opportunities to see inflection points in your financial life, right? Where you can make strides and you can jump a few steps ahead. That has more to do with your earning potential. So switching jobs helps. You're not going to make a lot more money at the same job, right? Unless you somehow climb your way up to like the executive suite, but chances are you're going to grow your income very incrementally over the years working at the same company. Where you see big jumps is when you shift firms, go to different companies. In my 20s, when I was working in journalism and making $18 an hour before taxes, and then after that, it was like a $40,000 a year job. And I had student loans and I had rent and living in New York City is not cheap. So I would just kick on a lot of side hustles. The side hustle thing is fraught and we need to be careful and we don't want to promote burnout. We want to also hold our economy accountable in some ways. I don't think that everyone should just go out there and get eight jobs. 
And then the government can be like, oh, well, see, you know, we can just have inflation forever because people are figuring it out. But I think that for me, I didn't see side hustles as a long-term bet. I was like, I just need to get another income stream to get out of credit card debt. And then if I can look at this side hustle, which was at the time just like freelancing for a newspaper and some babysitting, I can be out of credit card debt by next year, which imagine not having to pay $500 a month for the rest of my life to a credit card company. And so there are these opportunities that sometimes require getting uncomfortable, that sometimes require getting outside of our comfort zone and making some trade-offs that are difficult in the moment, but they're sprints and we do them and then we can get ahead like three years ahead, right? Because you just committed to this really hard thing for six months. Your whole new book is about fear. And it's interesting because the money section is a little bit later in the book and you self-acknowledge, wow, this is interesting that the money section is coming in later. People must be questioning this. But in fact, all of these different fears are entangled with our fear of money. I would love for you to share maybe a few of the most common fears that you find that people have around money. A big one is the fear of losing their money, losing it all, because so many people may have grown up in scarcity, in households that went bankrupt, where especially if you grew up as a tween, teen, during the last Great Recession, which was 2008, 2009, you're probably a young adult today, very, very apprehensive about real estate, about investing, because you saw your parents essentially do all the right things, right? And then their 401ks became 201ks. Their homes went underwater. That happened to my dad. He inherited some property from his parents when they died, and they had to put a road on it basically to be able to sell it. And in the time that it took them to build the road, it literally lost all of its value. And he went from potentially having this, not a huge windfall, but a small windfall to hovering on the verge of bankruptcy in 2008. Our financial lives are so fragile. I think we're all acutely aware of this. We've all had a brush with this or a wave with this. And I think that it is why so many of us arrive in our adult financial lives very, very feeling on edge and fearful of like, look, when we talk about money, we're talking about life money decisions are very high stakes because one wrong money move could mean a collapse. Forget money too. It could mean ruining a relationship with somebody. It could mean the end of a business. It could mean so many things that we don't even want to think about. And so as a result, the fear mistakenly prevents us from making any moves. We just remain stuck. Another thing people are really right about when it comes to money is just facing the numbers because they feel as though the numbers reflect who they are. We think that our net worth is our self-worth. And so if we see the credit card balances, if we see that credit card statement and it's way high, we're like, okay, we feel like a smaller version of ourselves. We feel as though we're not living our fullest potential. And so we don't wanna feel that way, so we don't even look at it. We stick the bills in the drawer. I want to dive into the rest of our money fears in a second, but I have questions on both of those things. First, the feeling that your worth is defined by your net worth. That is such a pervasively enforced societal notion. I know people in my life who have never worked a day in their life. They've inherited a ton of money and people still listen 
to what they say as if it's sage wisdom simply because they have a lot of money in their bank account. How do we get over the feeling that our net worth is entangled with our self-worth when society is constantly telling us otherwise? Well, you have to be careful with who you're surrounding yourself with, and you have to catch yourself in those moments. I think that the truth is, and I've worked with many people of all financial sizes and situations, and I will say sometimes the richest people are the saddest people. It never matters how much you make, as it turns out. There are things like sadness and depression and feeling lonely and feeling rejected that is not exclusive to people who don't have money. That happens at all income levels, at all wealth levels. You just have to accept that it is a fallacy and you're just watching fiction when you see things depicted on television, online that show a quote unquote rich person because they've got all the fancy things. They must have it all. They must be happy. They must be fulfilled. They've arrived. No, they still go back home and they have problems. I just did an episode about this on my podcast we called it rich kid problems. And it's like, okay, before you tune out, because who cares about the rich kids and their problems? I think it was called The Silver Spoon. The Myth of the Silver Spoon is this book. And the author does a beautiful job of looking at, okay, there are all these people that grew up wealthy, like you pointed out, silver spoon in their mouth, never had to worry about money. And they have problems. To analyze that actually opens up a window into a lot of our problems. These problems are universal. And so I think what the takeaway is, is that money does not cure our problems in those ways, our emotional problems, sometimes our connection problems, our relationship problems, our sense of self-worth problems. And so you cannot have a sense of feeling rich with just money. You have to also feel whole as a person. And that takes work. There is work there. And I think it's even harder sometimes than trying to go make the money. I think that is such a good point. And I also think that being aware of the insidious little societal messages around worth, like asking yourself, do I want that handbag that has the label on it so other people think I have money to buy this handbag or because I actually really want this handbag in my life? I think people do that with cars. They do that with houses. They do that with clothing. And I think being aware of the times you're trying to display yourself as wealthy versus spending your money in a way that you genuinely enjoy it. Every time you're just trying to display it, you're sort of reinforcing the idea that your worth is entangled with your self-worth. Yeah. Do you remember the book, The Millionaire Next Door? <laughs> yes, I do. I didn't read it, yeah. but I remember it. It's this person who's like driving a Honda, getting a $12 haircut. They live in a modest home and they are some of the happiest people and it's because they have money, that's for sure. But it's also because I think they're not buying into a construct of what it means to be rich and happy. And I think yeah. that you're right. Whenever we see, whether it's in your TikTok feed or wherever it's showing up, it's showing up everywhere. But someone who is portrayed as rich and happy, they're trying to sell you something. Who doesn't want happiness? And if you can pair happiness with a Balenciaga bag, well, you know, you're going to sell more bags. A hundred percent. Okay. And then to dive into the other thing, I have that feeling of feeling forever unsafe around money. If you ask me how much money I would need to feel safe, which is actually a question in my conversation starter cards, I'm like, it is such a high number because I'm so afraid that at any point I could lose it all or I could lose my ability to make money. And I would love any 
very concrete, actionable advice that I could use to assuage myself of this fear? Well, let me put things in context for you. The average person has less than $400 in an emergency. So do you have more than that? You're way ahead of things. You're way ahead of things already. For me, whenever I'm feeling fear around something so abstract, like losing it all or one day or what if, I have to, my job, and I'm a journalist and you are too, so we're good at this. We ask it questions like, okay, so let's get out of the clouds, the what ifs, and that really scary 30,000 feet above air perspective and bring it home. Bring that fear home. So you need to create some what ifs for yourself that are very personal and very timely. So it's not just like, what if one day, what if tomorrow, Liz, your house burned down, God forbid. What if tomorrow there was a tragedy and you couldn't work for six months, a health tragedy? Okay. Now I like fear, but this isn't meant to make people just get scared for the sake of getting scared. It's actually because when we go to that dark place and we get ourselves there and we see around us what's happening, for me at least, it has always been a trigger to go and do something. And whether that something is just to get more educated, to create a plan, to look at my finances, things that I wasn't doing before when I was just in this world of what if, feeling scared, but you really need to create some worst case scenarios for yourself. So what if you did, speaking to the audience here, lose your job tomorrow, not someday, but like actually tomorrow. So what would you do tomorrow? Would you just sit there? No, you wouldn't. You would go and find out what your potential severance is. And you can find that out now. You can go and look at your bank account and see what's sitting there. And if you had to stretch that out for the next six months, what would you cut out? And at least then, if and when something like that happens, you can hit the ground running and start actually deploying some important moves. I think it's really important that when you have these abstract fears that you distill them and you go to the scariest place you can, which is like, this is happening. This isn't just a hypothetical anymore. This has happened. What am I doing in this moment? I absolutely love a low lift daily habit that has a big payoff over time. It's why I'm always asking podcast guests for little hacks and tips that we can all do easily to live a better life without sacrificing a ton of time or energy. And that's why I love AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I know there are a lot of people who wonder if AG1 is overhyped because so many people talk about it, but in this case, it's just one of those things that's super hyped because it's actually that good. I gave AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution that supports my entire body and covers my nutritional bases every day, no matter how the rest of the day goes, especially for gut health and immune support. I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. You can also mix it into juice or a smoothie, but I genuinely love the taste, so I go with water. And boom, you have this incredible insurance that you've gotten your foundational nutrition in from that one-minute habit in your day. I'm always trying to eat veggie-packed, nutritionally dense meals, but I am not perfect, so AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, and adaptogens to cover the bases. I love how it gives me some gentle energy right after I drink it without any jitters so it doesn't stoke my anxiety like caffeine. It gives me a ton of mental clarity and clears any sluggishness or brain fog that I have, which is why even though a lot of people start their day with it, I actually prefer to drink mine in the early afternoon when I have that 3 p.m. slump. And it is not a placebo effect. 
AG1 has so many ingredients that have been extensively researched for their brain health effects like rhodiola root dry extract, hawthornberry, and rosemary to name just a few. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything, and they are third-party tested, which is always so important to look for. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a one-year supply of their amazing vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. That's drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. Having some vinegar before a meal is one of my favorite blood sugar balancing hacks that I learned from the Glucose Goddess episode of the podcast, which is still one of our most popular podcast episodes. You definitely need to listen if you haven't yet. But essentially, the acetic acid elongates the blood sugar curve so you don't feel that spike and crash. And apple cider vinegar helps you absorb more nutrients from your food. So it is a win-win. While you can, of course, just use a little vinegar in water, the main time that I am eating less blood sugar-friendly meals is when I am out at restaurants, which is where the Paleo Valley apple cider vinegar capsules come in so handy. I keep my Paleo Valley capsules in my car glove compartment, so they are always on hand. I just take one before a meal out, and it helps me feel so much better afterwards, regardless of what I eat. I also would be remiss if I didn't talk about Paleo Valley's turmeric complex. I've talked about how Zach swears by it for dealing with the knee pain that he sometimes gets from going on long runs before. He is marathon training right now, so go Zach, lots of long runs. But I honestly recommend it to pretty much anyone in my life experiencing pain. My uncle used it for back pain and it was wildly helpful, and I personally cycle in and out when my shoulder pain is acting up. Turmeric has been studied to support healthy joints, brain health, immune function, and cardiovascular function, and it's an amazing, effective way to combat chronic inflammation, one of the things that often causes us pain. It's also super important that turmeric is consumed with black pepper and fat to increase its bioavailability, and Paleo Valley's turmeric complex has organic black pepper and coconut oil in each capsule, along with three other powerful anti-inflammatories ginger, rosemary, and cloves for the maximum synergistic response. Both of these complexes have no fillers, no binders, no preservatives, and are made with all organic ingredients and just a veggie capsule. They're also third-party tested, which is something I always look for in supplements as extra assurance of their quality. I always recommend looking for supplements for your specific needs at any given moment and needs change. So definitely explore Paleo Valley's site. They have a ton of incredibly high quality options for supplements and more, including a new electrolyte drink that is so tasty and well-formulated and bars and grass-fed meat sticks that are perfect for snacking on the go. If you would like to check out the turmeric complex, the apple cider vinegar complex, or any of Paleo Valley's other amazing products, Head over to paleovalley.com slash Liz Moody for 15% off your first order. That's paleovalley.com slash Liz Moody for 15% off your first order. In the book, you talk about being afraid of money in the right way. Would you classify this as that? Yes, yes. But you typically are scared in the wrong ways in the sense that like when we feel fear, we've been so conditioned to hate it to think that it's the demon inside of us, that we push it away, we try to ignore it, but fear doesn't just go away, right? It's like this constant. And so there is a healthier way to deal with fear. And usually it's to just face it and ask it questions. And sometimes you may realize, I don't need to be scared. 
But in that exploration, in that deep dive and unpacking of that fear that you're feeling, I guarantee you, you will learn so much about yourself and what you want to protect and what you value. And isn't that what we all want a little bit more of? We just all want to get closer to who we actually are and what matters to us. Because from that vantage point, we can make the best decisions about money, about work, about relationships, about ourselves. Can you walk us through that in practice with maybe another common money fear? Can you kind of show us what being afraid of that thing in the right way would look like? Sure. Sophomore year, I worked three jobs. I took on a lot of course loads too, and it was just so overwhelming. I go and quickly check my bank account and it said negative a hundred or whatever dollars. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Whose account is this? I almost didn't make it to my next shift. I was so perplexed. I felt so depleted. I had worked so hard. I had made what I thought was a nice chunk of money, thousands of dollars, and now I have nothing. So I quickly looked at the statement and saw that I had overdrafted multiple times using my debit card Mm. in the last 48 hours. Now, this was the 90s. So we didn't have mobile apps and things like that to give us real-time notifications. And so, you know, the way that overdraft protection works is that when you're in the store and you don't have money, it overdrafts and it doesn't embarrass you. (laughs) It just goes through and then you deal with the consequences later and you get charged like 35 or whatever dollars. So this had happened multiple times. It was hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of, I called the bank, I told them, look, I'm not trying to fleece you. I just didn't know. And is that allowed? (laughs) And the guy on the other line, he was very nice. He was like, yeah, I see what happened here. Okay. So I'm going to get rid of these other overdraft fees. I'll just charge you for one, but the other nine, we can turn a blind eye. I said, thank you. So now I'm back in the black. And that was a moment for me where I realized I was too afraid of just not having enough money and not also afraid or more afraid of managing the money well. You got to sometimes pair the fear. You can't just be afraid of one thing. Maybe be afraid of a couple of other tangential things that will work together in a synchronized way. I was not wrong for being worried about not having enough money that motivated me to go get the jobs, which was great. But I didn't also fear because I wasn't educated perhaps on how to live within my means and budget. How do we deal with fear of things that we cannot control when it comes to money? Things like inflation and interest rates and job markets. Well, it's like anytime you fear uncertainty in this case, the fear of money and the fear of uncertainty are close kins. They're just like the best buds. And so much of our financial fears come from the fear of uncertainty. So I always say that when fear of uncertainty arrives, it's nudging you to identify what you can immediately control that is within your power, because that is what you're trying to protect after all, is your sense of security. So you can't control the Federal Reserve or inflation or the recession that's going to happen again. It's inevitable. But what can you control in the interim and during all of that to feel empowered and like you've got a handle on things. There's a lot that you may not even recognize. So often when we think about laying down our fears of money, it requires money. If only I had more money, I could be less afraid of money. No, 
That's actually not it. Sometimes the cure for having a healthier relationship with your financial fears or just not having them overwhelm you is sometimes just working on your mind, working on how you've been thinking about money, the perceptions you've been having about money. One of the first steps in calming your financial fears is, again, asking it where it came from. Why do I fear this, actually? This discovery may say the fear is bogus, but getting to that discovery point is invaluable because you might discover, oh my gosh, I've been surrounded by some really terrible people. <laughs> I don't want to be around these people anymore who are feeding me these lies, right, about what my worth is around money and what my capabilities are in my financial life. Or maybe you realize it is true and you got to do something about it, but it's always worth the exploration. And that didn't cost anything except for your commitment to getting to know yourself. If I say my fear is inflation or my fear is another recession, what is the thing that's in my control to do in that situation? Sure. So if your fear is inflation, the first thing you want to do is look at your cash flow and inflow outflow, right? What am I spending every month on the things that I need? How can I bring down those costs? How can I save? Our best defense against inflation in our personal economies is to reduce not so much our spending, but be more creative about what we're spending on and how we're spending. So are we buying in bulk? Are we freezing? Are we carpooling? It's really these back to basic strategies. And then also, can I make more money somehow? Even if it's just $100 a month to be able to pay down that credit card where the interest rate keeps going up in this inflationary time. So those are the things, can I get help? right? Can I call a credit counselor? Can I work with a financial planner? Can I call my bank and see if there's any way to lower my interest rate or get on a payment plan for my medical bill? Look, you have to be your biggest advocate in these moments because inflation will figure itself out and we have tools for that, but it takes years. So in the meantime, what are you going to do? You have to do something that's within your reach and all of these things are within your reach. And again, not always requiring money, right? It's really just about getting resourceful. Yeah, I like that. Do you have any advice for the anxiety that comes with feeling behind on money? Like you should have invested this much by now or your friends can afford to buy a house and you can't, things like that? Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, again, it goes back to that narrative. Like, why are you holding on to this narrative? I was just having a conversation yesterday with a friend who's like, I feel behind because I'm not owning a home yet. And my parents did. And I'm like, yeah, but your parents did it in the 80s. And I'm not saying that interest rates weren't high in the 80s and it wasn't hard to buy a house in the 80s, but the spread between what a home costs and what average income was, the affordability was much, much more accessible back then than it is now. You have to check yourself and the stories that you're telling yourself and be kinder to yourself. Just because someone else's financial life played out in a certain way doesn't mean that it has to for yours. The other thing I'll say is that whenever you're feeling FOMO, this is really financial FOMO, I'm not where I should be, but everybody else seems to be going to Greece and they're on their second home. And sometimes we set ourselves up for failure because our definition of success is completely out of whack. Our definition of success is pegged to somebody else's success. That's not cool, that's not right. What is your definition of happiness and success? You gotta figure that out and then decide 
it'll just be easier then to decide whether home ownership is actually right for you or not. And if that you decide it still is, then fine, but you're not doing it because you're trying to measure up to other people's expectations and other people's lifestyles. It's hard. I'm not saying this is, oh, just flip the switch and you'll just start feeling this way. It's great. It's super. It's easy. But this is the work. It's such an interesting dynamic. I always tell people, especially women, to talk more about money and make it less taboo so we can all earn more. But one of the downsides of doing that is if you have insights into your friend's financial situation, sometimes it can make you feel worse about your own and it can lead to guilt on the other person's side. It can lead to resentment. It can lead to jealousy. I'm curious how you recommend people navigate that. Like, Do you recommend people share salaries? I think that when you feel like you're in a safe relationship, place, friendship, yes. I think that salary transparency, I'm an advocate for that, but I don't think always. Mm. I mean, I talk about that in the book, like the fear of exposure is real. And I've even heard from friends, financial expert friends who were sharing their incomes on social media and realizing we live in a world that's not always so accepting and encouraging of that. But I think in general, I think that just sharing the income is not helpful. I think you also want to know how did you get here? The context. You have to ask how come, how, why, what did you do? What's your advice for me? Because then it's helpful. If you're just meeting someone, they're like, they have the same job title as you, but they're making twice as you, then that's deflating. I get it. But maybe the next question is, what was your previous salary and how did you make the jump? What was the conversation like when you went into the room to ask for that money? What's your advice for me, right? There's so much we can learn from each other, but I think it's important that we just really commit to going deeper. Well, and to the point of the other stuff we were talking about earlier, if you're just kind of like sharing the salary and leaving it there, it often will veer more into that we're judging each other's worth than we're actually trying to empower each other and utilize this information for net benefit. Exactly. Yeah, it's very easy. It feels like a, just a quick way to slap on someone's self-worth, the meter goes up. Oh, this person makes six figures. Clearly, they're a happier, better, more capable person. A hundred percent. Do you have any advice specifically for when you're in a different financial situation than your friends, but you still want to do stuff with them? Because if you pay, that can create a really weird dynamic. But if you don't pay, then you can't maybe do the things that you want to do and that you've earned the money to do. So I would love your advice for the people on both sides, the person with more money in those friendship dynamics and also the person with less, because I think they both have their own sets of challenges. If you are sensing tension or friction around sharing in some costs and doing things together that cost money because you're on different financial planes, then I think you need to talk about it. Does the person who's making more or has more financial capacity, let's just say, be conscious. Realize you're in a place of more privilege and that it may be difficult for your friend to talk to you about the fact that this is making them uncomfortable and that they can't come with you on certain trips or go to certain places with you. And really being emotionally intelligent around your friends that are making less or have less and that you're not that friend who is like, let's go to Beyonce and don't assume anything, right? Never assume that your friends are going to be able to pull it off. And I'm sure people will with their credit cards. I'm a little nervous, you know, hearing on the one hand, love that Taylor Swift, billion dollars, great. But <laughs> you're like, where's this money coming from? Is it just all rich people going? No, I'm sure not, you know, and we know that credit card bills are at a record high right now. 
I think a few of them might have some Taylor Swift tickets on there. I'm just going to guess. So as the more financially, how shall I say, flexible person in the friendship that you take on maybe the role of being hyper aware of what's going on and being the one to maybe start that conversation to encourage vulnerability in that friendship to say, hey, I realize that we don't have the same financial goals. Maybe we aren't spending money on the same things and we can't. But the most important thing for me is that we hang out and we have fun. And then for the other person who may not have as much to spend on activities and hanging out, I think that you can also be proactive. You can say like, hey, I got us a group rate for this dinner. You know, I remember planning a bachelorette party. This was in our 20s for my friend. And we were at all different income levels and debt levels. But we all had committed to coming to New York to have dinner with our friend who was becoming a bride. And so I was arranging it. I didn't ask everyone for their net worth salary totals. I wasn't like, okay, what do you make? What do you make? Okay, I guess we can go to Tao. No, it was like, I'm going to try to just do this like I would on a budget. Who cares what I can afford or what someone else who's making more can afford? We have to level the playing field. I called around some restaurants. I asked for a prefix menu. They accommodated. I think that places are willing to accommodate if they know you're coming in a large group. They're willing to lower their prices a little bit, throw in an extra bottle of wine. And then also important, I managed expectations going in. I was like, this is going to cost $100 per person or $65 per person. So if you're not okay with that, you can join us for the next thing, which is going to be drinks at this bar. Having different options for different people to participate in. Right. I was going to ask, what would you say to the person who's like, well, I worked hard for my money. I want to go to Beyonce. I want to have a fancy bachelorette, et cetera. And would your advice be to weigh what means more or to have the different tiers so people can participate in different parts or something else? It's such a personal decision. I definitely don't agree with pressuring your friends to come with you to something that they can't afford. That's not being a good friend. Yeah. Can you share some practical tips for assessing whether a big financial risk is worth taking, whether it's going back to school or buying a home or leaving a job that we hate for a dream job that might pay less? Mm -hmm. Well, first thing you want to figure out is, can I afford it? Can I actually, with real money, <laughs> afford it? If you're using this going back to school example, it's student loans, it's leveraging, it's financing. And not to say that that's, okay, well, that's not happening. We can't do it. It's just that you have to, again, think about, can I manage this payment? Is this going to be feasible for me? And so that's the first step. What is the cost? How am I going to afford it? Am I coming up with the most optimal way to afford this? If it's going back to school again, could you get scholarships? Could you get grants? Could you go part-time? What is possible I would prefer that everybody cash flow everything, that it's just coming and they're paying it with cash. Nothing against debt. I have a mortgage. I have a car loan, but I had student loans. They all helped me advance. And I guess the answer to your question is, will this actually be an investment that will pay with dividends? And I'm ready for that long haul because it may not pay right away. And do you mean literally pay or like I have friends who just bought a really expensive home, but they are home bodies and they spend a lot of time at home. Can it pay off in emotional ways or this is going to be a place I really like to be or does that not count? Well, yes, it's paying off emotionally, but I would also say for your friends, it's paying off financially too because they are in their home. Maybe they're not going to Greece this summer or whatever, right? So you are getting a lot out of their entertaining at home. They're not going out. So 
long term it is. And I do think there's something to be said about being happy in your purchasing choices and money isn't everything. But I would be concerned if you said, my friends bought this house and they're struggling to make the payments and they had to sell furniture or they had to get a third job or whatever. Then I'd be like, okay, maybe they took on more than they could really carry. It's about what's practically affordable. If it's like a Venn diagram, I can afford it. I can manage those payments. It has a return on investment, which could hopefully mean financial, but also emotional. Third, I want to do it for me. This isn't something that I feel pressured into doing. So important because society can dictate so much of our path. And we end up one day going, how did I get here? Why am I here? Why did I do all the things I thought I was supposed to do and I'm still unhappy? Yeah, a hundred percent. There's a whole talking head song about that. It's so interesting. I have this pros and cons of having kids series. One of the experts that I interviewed on that, I was like, well, how do you make this decision? And she did the same thing where she took this thing that I think a lot of us view very emotionally, like it's a dream or it's not a dream. And she was like, what are the practical elements of your life? And how are you considering, can I afford the kid? What does my day-to-day life look like with the kid? What do my finances look like? Do I have people around who can help me? You're sort of doing the same thing with money where I think we're told, we're given so much messaging around anything you dream, you can make real. And I think there's beauty in that. But I also think there's beauty in saying, well, let's bring it back to the practical questions and then we can create practical solutions for those practical questions and use that practicality to inform our decision-making. Yes. I love practicality. (laughs) It's going to go on my tombstone. She was a very practical woman. (laughs) And I think practical doesn't get enough credit in our society. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. Like, oh, you're so boring. Oh, you're so straight and narrow. But it's like, I am living the dream, y'all. I am living the dream thanks to my practicality. I love that. Can you just leave us with one homework assignment, something that we can all do when we stop listening to this podcast today to begin to reframe or feel better about some of our anxieties or fears around money? It's this. When you feel financial fear of any shape, any size, ask yourself, what is my opportunity right now? What is the thing that I want to protect? You're feeling this fear for a reason. It didn't just show up for a good hang. It came with a message and it is very personal. You want to be the adult in the room and turn to that fear and say, what do you want me to protect? And how can we turn this moment into an opportunity to protect and secure? You can go back fear to living your life and I can go back to living mine. And I appreciate you showing up, but let's work together and figure out a way to find a solution. Be practical. I love that. Can you tell us a little bit about your brilliant new book and your podcast? Thank you. I'd love to. I feel like we've been talking about it more or less uh, this whole hour, but the new book, it's my fourth book and it's taken nine years since my last book to figure out what I really wanted to write about. And it's called A Healthy State of Panic. Follow your fears to build wealth, crush your career and win at life. It is the culmination of my 40 plus years living life afraid and somehow making shit work. I get stuff done. I'm happy most days. And I think that fear deserves a rebrand. And the reason that the money lady is talking about fear is because when we talk about money, we're talking about really, like I said, 
high stakes, pivotal moments, decisions in our lives? How could we not be afraid? It is the emotional underpinning of so many of our financial conundrums. And so I've been working professionally with fear for a lot of my life. And personally, this is my next contribution to the personal finance space. I decided to write a book that was about money, but also about emotional well-being and mental health and tackling fear and giving it the street cred that I think it deserves to help us find answers that we so desperately want when it comes to how to make more, how to get out of debt, how to build a career that we love, how to find the right partner, how to be alone and happy, how to face rejection and it's okay, how to face something uncertain and know that you can get through it successfully. And then the podcast, truly the podcast, I think I haven't written a book in nine years because I've been doing the podcast for nine years. It's a full-time job. <laughs> it's a full-time job, as we know. The podcast informed a lot of the book, which is spoken to a lot of people. And when you're talking about money, it's like the third guest on the show is fear, I say. So the book and the podcast are very much two peas in a pod. And the podcast is called So Money. And I hope you'll check it out. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Farnoosh. This was very helpful for my anxiety, and I'm sure it will be for our listeners as well. Thank you so much, Liz. That was so good. You asked the best questions. Ooh, that was such good stuff. I feel calmer. Do you feel calmer? If something in here resonated with you or you have a friend you think it could help, please send them a link. Again, literally just opening up the conversation about these things is so, so key to making progress on both a societal and individual level. If someone shared a link with you and you are new to the podcast, Welcome. I am so glad that you're here. Make sure that you're following the podcast on whatever platform you like to listen on. All you have to do is go to the main podcast page. That is the one that lists all of the Liz Moody podcast episodes, and you will see the word follow under the logo on Spotify. And then there's a little follow with a plus sign button on the top right of that same page on Apple Podcasts. This way you will not miss out on any new episodes. They will appear right in your feed every single Wednesday. And you do not want to miss out because we have some very exciting ones coming up. Next week will be a very special episode. It will be both our 200th episode and my book release episode. So tune on in for that. It's going to be a party. And remember to go to lizmoody.com slash tour so we can all hang out together on tour. It will truly be one night to change your life. Or go to 100waystochangeyourlife.com to snag your copy of the book so you are entered for that $1,000 flight credit giveaway. You only have one more week to enter before the book is officially published and the special pre-order giveaway is closed. So get on that, 100waystochangeyourlife.com. Okay, I love you and I will see you next Wednesday on the next episode of the Liz Moody Podcast. Okay, you know what stat blows my mind? People in the U.S. take about 20,000 breaths per day and spend an average of 90%, 90% of their time indoors. And that indoor air can be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. Indoor air pollutants can cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. I talked about this with a world-famous doctor friend years ago, and I was like, it is awful. What do I do? And she said, you need a high-quality air purifier, and you need to keep one in any room that you spend a ton of time in, which is why I am so excited to introduce you to Air Doctor. 
Air Doctor goes above and beyond the HEPA standard, which requires that 99.97% of particles at 0.3 microns be captured by a filter. Air Doctor uses an ultra-HEPA filter that was independently tested and proven to remove at least 99.99% of particles as small as 0.003 microns. That is 100 times smaller than the HEPA standard. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander. For any other pet parents who are allergic to their babies, this makes the biggest difference in my allergies with Bella. Highly recommend for that alone. This includes dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. Also, if you live somewhere that is coming up on potential fires this summer, please, please, please get an air doctor so you have it ready. Breathing in smoke is awful for your lungs. And as somebody who lives in California, it gives me such peace of mind that I have my air doctor ready to go. We have a few, but if you are starting with one, keep it in the bedroom. That way you're breathing great air for at least a third of your life and it'll help you get better sleep, which will have so many downstream positive effects. And as a little bonus extra, it has such a nice white noise sound. It actually helps me fall asleep and stay asleep. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you do not love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code LizMoody, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. And this part is exclusive to LizMoody podcast listeners. You will receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O dot com and use promo code Liz Moody.